Um, I have shared with you before uh, an A.W. Tozer quote um, that says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the more, most important thing about us. Um, C.S. Lewis makes an alternate claim. And he says that it's not what we think about God that is most important, but what he thinks about us. That we are pleasing to him. And so we don't, we don't um, discount that it is important what we, uh, what we think about God. It is very important. But what is more important than that um, is what he thinks about us. Are we pleasing to him? He says this, To please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness... To be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in his work or a father and a son, it seems impossible. A weight or burden of glory which our thoughts can hardly sustain. But so it is. Do you think that God delights in you? That he is a, uh, that he is a person who wants so longingly to be connected to you? That our relationship with God is not this thing that is sad or mundane but it is this the most joyous the most glorious the most wonderful thing that has ever happened i want to acknowledge both of these ideas that we're talking about but also um, help us understand the need for real relationship and this is what i think peter alludes to when we um in our passage this morning if you would turn to acts uh, three and we're going to be looking at verses one through ten this morning but um primarily at one phrase that he uses. Read along with me. Now what has, uh, what has happened prior to this, right, that Jesus has given, uh, told them that they'll be his witnesses. In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, and they have waited on him ten days since his ascension. And as they were waiting in the upper room, the Holy Spirit falls heavy and they walk out into the plaza and begin prophesying in different languages, proclaiming the wonderful works of God. And Peter uses that opportunity to share the gospel. And the men respond, the men and women respond of the city, and 3,000 are added to the number daily. And it says immediately after that that they go and begin devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And many of us got to experience uh, probably what that was uh, very like over the weekend as we spent time uh, being in God's Word together and praying together, eating all of our meals together, being committed to the fellowship. And it says that they had all things in common and that they had favor with all the people and people were being added daily to their number, those that God was saving. And so it's as this was going on that we are let into a little episode uh, of two apostles just walking to the temple, probably uh, getting ready to teach to the people as the other people were coming and being devoted to their teaching. And so they're probably on their way to a teaching assignment. So we pick up here in verse uh, 1 of chapter 3. And now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. A man had been lame from his mother's womb, was being carried along whom they had used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms for those who were entering the temple. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he began, to ask, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on them and said, Look at us. 
He began to give them his attention and expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not uh, possess silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were strengthened. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him. As being the one who used to sit at the beautiful, uh, at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. The word that comes to mind from this episode is the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. How many times have you ever heard that? Has anyone never heard this term? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. It's a a made-up word for the um, Disney movie Mary Poppins. It used to be the longest word in the English dictionary at 34 letters. And here's what it means. Extraordinarily good. Wonderful. Our God is supercalifragilistic expialidocious. And that seems silly, but it isn't. Because so many times we have every other opinion of what our God is, but this is what He is. You can't say that word without smiling. That we shouldn't be able to think about God without smiling in His goodness about what he wants to be for us and what he's changing us into. About how, how grand he is that there is a portion in the Bible in Psalm 5 that is dedicated to the worship of God and it says that every, every person that sees him is essentially just singing supercalifragilistic, expialidocious all day, every day because they can't get over it about how wonderful our good God is. But the phrase that I want to uh, pull out for you today is this phrase that Peter says. As the, Peter, as the man asks him uh, for money, Peter says, gold or silver I do not have, but what I have I give you. And that's the, that's the phrase that's been wrecking me this week. And I've been turning that over and over in my mind. What do I have to give? And is it something that would cause another human being to leap for joy? Peter had much to give in the name of Jesus Christ, but I think for far too many Christians, we don't think we have much to give. We don't have anything that we think would make somebody leap for joy. To explain that silly word. My prayer this morning, and has been all week, that it would not be said of me or you, and if it is, if, if you're thinking about what is it that I have to give and that's not that much, it's not that God, then I pray that it would be. It it matters very much what we think about God, and it matters more what he thinks about us. But both come together when we seek him. Not as we need him to be, but in the fullness that he really is, the supercalifragilistic, expialidocious God. Do we seek him as a loving shepherd 
the doting father, the faithful husband, the righteous king. This morning I want to offer three questions for you that I want to be able to answer this morning. And here's the three questions. Do we know him? Do we know that God? If we are saying we know him or wanting to know him, are we seeking him? Because I seek the people that I want to know. And finally, if we find him, how do we keep him? Or if we find him, what do we do with him? And so as we, um, as we go out of here, I want us to be able to answer those questions. It is the most important thing. As per usual, this almost becomes commonplace as I share John 17, 3, and this is eternal life that they may know you, right? The one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that this is no callous thing. Many of us have uh, used this expression, um, we say, this is the life, right? And so so for some of us, it's the, the couple times that Carolina scores touchdowns, right? And we're like, this is the life. If they could do this more often, this, I love it. Everyone's excited. But more often than not, it, it is me with my feet up, maybe a blanket on me, and I'm just comfortable. And I explain, this is the life. And John's saying, you idiot. That's not the life. I think he is being that being that not nice (laughs) this as John records Jesus's words and Jesus says this is the life to know me that's pretty bold right you've never known life till you know me I know many of you as I say hey what'd you do today I got to spend time with so and so it was awesome to spend people with people that are life giving and yet we have here the author of life Genesis 3.8 talks about, and this is post the fall, when he comes looking for his people. And it says, Adam and Eve heard Jesus, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the implication is always that God's doing what he always is doing, and he's looking for his people that he knows, and he wants to walk with them. And he wants them to enjoy their company, and he wants them to enjoy his. The supercalifragilistic, expialidocious God in the garden. Leviticus 26.12 says, I will also walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. Jesus is saying to us, living securely, safely in my presence is the life. Now as we're saying of, uh, as we're thinking about uh, knowing God, We want to think about what does communion with him look like. So I'm just going to give you a couple verses, but the main thing I want you to focus on is what knowledge of God looks like, what it equals, okay? And so what it will do if you're taking notes here is it should show you if I know God, if communion with God, here's just a few verses of what the Bible says that that equals. So that these are promises to you. These are the things that are true of you if you know him or are known by him. The first is that knowing God equals loving kindness and the outpouring of God's righteousness. Is there anyone in here that does not need more loving kindness in their life? 
anyone bold enough? And then as we come to know that loving kindness, that we also are going to experience the outpouring of God's righteousness. His rightness in your life. The thing that you are to be, He wants to pour that into you. He wants you to be like Him so that you are able to do what is right. Psalm 36.10, O continue your loving kindness to those who know you, Lord, and your righteousness to the upright in heart. Second thing is knowing and understanding God equals something to boast about. We boast of many things. We get excited about many things, but we, do we boast about, do we get excited about knowing God? There are people in your life that you are excited to know them. I get to be this guy's friend or this gal's friend. I get to count them in the people that know me and like me. Jeremiah, 29, or Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. The things that are good in this world are about him, and the things that are not are not. He says, those are my things. Remember that. I am not an absent God. Boast about knowing me and nothing else. Third, the knowledge of God equals God, uh, equals God delighting. Uh, us, God delights in more uh, than anything else. That us knowing him, he, he delights in this. So basically what he's saying is that the relationship that you have with him is the thing that he delights in more than anything else. Do you understand that? He wants you, right, and not the things that we give him. talked several Thursdays ago about kind of a picture that shows worship is that a, a person before him, right, matters what he is giving, not the thing. He wants you. He delights in you. Hosea 6, 6 says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. He delights in knowing you more than anything else. Number four, I think. The knowledge of God is better than anything else. All other things are rubbish. Paul says in Philippians 3, 8, More than that, I count all things as rubbish. All things as loss in view of knowing the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but poo-poo, so that I may gain Christ. That was from McClendon. The knowledge of God is better than anything else. All other things are rubbish. Number five, knowledge of God equals pleading the cause of the afflicted and the needy. That if we know him, that we'll be about the things that he's about. How many of you know people of such strong personality that you, just to spend the afternoon with them, you begin to take on their intonations and pick up uh, words they say? I was talking with Tripp and Andy, they're both from the country, right? And they joke about when they get together, they talk a little more country, <laughs> than they do when they're around other people. They lay it on a little thicker. 
They crank up the they crank up the music and enjoy it. But our God pleads for the cause of the needy and the afflicted. That he has the audacity to think that that you should do something about that. Because he wants to do something about it. And we do what our Father wants. Jeremiah twenty two sixteen says, He pled the cause of the afflicted and needy, then it was well. Is not that what it means to know me? They did the thing I wanted them to do, and they did it well. Isn't that what it means to know me? And just one more, knowledge of God is not knowing the scriptures, it's about knowing Christ. And that the knowledge of God equals the love of God. John 5, 39-42 You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You search my love letters thinking that in them you will find my heart and as I know they're there so that you will find me. But you won't come to me to have life. You look for life but you won't come to me for it. So we answered the first, so we sought to answer the first question, what does it mean to know God? So then we're on to the second. If we, if we are saying we know him or want to know him, are we seeking him? Unfortunately, it doesn't matter if every day of my entire life I have known Renee, but from this day forward till the rest of our lives I don't seek her. What does that do with our relationship? Does it count for anything? The Bible says that it is this seeking that allows us to find him. That if I want to know my wife, I must seek her out. I must do this continually. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. Uh, please turn there. I want this, this bears uh, doing some underlining and some starring and some other things. Some clouding. Anybody do this? Like the little swirly circle? Like if you're going to circle something, but you kind of do some little, I call that clouding. Feel free to use that. Jeremiah 29, 11 through 14. This is the scripture that helps us understand how to seek God and the promises that it invokes should determine, right, should help us strive to want to seek him because of what it says. I want to look at this uh, very carefully. Verse 11, this is the verse that most of you are familiar with. You may have a print in your parents' house that says this. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord. Well, I hope so. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Now, for the Israelites, this is said in the midst of exile. That they are a captive people. 
without the freedom to worship, without the freedom to govern themselves. And he is speaking into that. Many of you may feel this, right? That I don't have the freedom I want. I'm in school. I have these restrictions on me. He's saying, I know the plans I have for you, and they are for your welfare, and they're not for calamity. It's to give you a future and a hope. We have decided and put our hopes and our futures in certain things. But God is saying that I let me do that. That is my place. And so if we will take him at his word that we, he knows the plans that he has for us so I don't have to. If we take him at his words that the plans he has are for my good and that the plans I have that you should trust in me will give you a hope in the future, then this, this truth that allows us to seek him why would we seek him if we don't believe that? This is something that you have to fight for. This is the place at which your seeking starts, that God is good and that his plan for me is better than my plan. And if we are even remotely interested, we should run as fast as we can in the way that he tells us to go. Verse 12 says, if, if this is the place that allows you to seek, then verse 12, then you will call upon me, right? You've decided, okay, that is worth seeking. Then you will call upon me, come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. That my ears are open, that I'm ready to hear you. That this is faith manifested in our, this request, and it showcases the relationship that God wants with us. That if we understand the relationship he wants with us, that we will call upon him, we will pray to him, and we will understand that he listens to us. Verse 13. This is the best promise in the entire Bible. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all of your heart. The most wonderful, deep promise of the Bible showcases his desires and his promises. God is worth giving our heart to and running after with reckless abandon. And he will reward this seeking with allowing us to delight in all that he has to offer in his unfathomable riches. Verse 14 declares, I will be found by you. This promise is to Israel, but as we are his people, his promise is to us as well. And it gives us two things that we were promised, and this, and this answers the very longing of your soul, I think, and it, it absolutely answers the longing of mine. He promises two things when he says, if you will seek me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declared the Lord, and he says this, that our search will not be in vain. And that is what our fear is, correct? That if I go hard after God, that that search will come up wanting. And he is saying, if you search for me with all of your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will not be absent. I will not be sleeping. I will not be out. I will be there. Do you know, do you know how much our heart wants to respond to that? To say, if you'll come, I'll be there. If, if you want this thing, I'm going to give it to you. Just come. It says that our search will not be in vain. If we give our lives to him, it says my life will not be a waste. The thing that I am about and that I give myself to is right, that I am no fool. And the second thing it speaks to our heart 
other than that our search will not be in vain, is that I am not in vain. This is what we are scared of when we are awake at night at 2 o'clock in the morning and running through what we're about. I don't want to be in vain. That my life means something. That God is saying to you, Nick, I know you. You are not in vain. Alex, God is saying, I know you. You are not in vain. Ashton, God is saying, I know you. You are not in vain. That if you give me your life, your life will count for something. It'll count for me. I'm the thing that matters most. I say it. It's true. Lastly, if we understand more or less what, what it means to know God, and that if we know God or seek to know God, that we need to seek for Him. Lastly, well, what happens if I find Him? What happens if He opens up His life to me? What, what then? And here's the place, this is the most important part, that it's about coming to embrace the fullness of that relationship. I've talked with several people, and they, uh, one of them said this, I'm realizing that God is offering me a lot more than I currently understand, and I don't want to miss all that God is. Am I allowing myself to get to know the God of the universe, the one who truly knows me and has made me for himself, or some lesser person? I'm going to give you a quick illustration as we kind of wrap up here. It's often said that we put God in a box, right? We limit him in our lives. And I, I believe that that illustration is true, but I want to use that kind of metaphor and ask you, a couple questions. I want you to think about your relationship with God, the benefit as benefits that you receive from Him. I want you to think about that my relationship with God is to the extent of the benefits that I receive from knowing Him. And let's say that the benefits that I'm currently uh, benefiting from could fit in a box. How big is that box? Let me give you a couple options. One option might be that my relationship amounts to wanting heaven. That is the benefit that I want from him. I don't want anything else. I just want you to let me into heaven. That sounds like a great place. I don't need anything else. Just when I show up, say, you're good. What kind of box would that fit in? Pretty small box. God of the universe wants to know and be in a relationship with you. And you're like, ah, that's, that's, I'm good. That's all I need. Another option, so these are the benefits that he offers me. I pray to him when I'm desperate. So when I'm at my wit's end, I call out <laughs> and ask him to help. I visit his people sometimes. I'm familiar with the plot of his story. 
And I, I, de- I know decently well some songs about him. That's the amount of my relationship. That's more than the other relationship that needs a bigger box. I mean, those are three or four benefits that lots of people would want to enjoy, that lots of people don't have. Is that the relationship that I have with him? That requires a bit bigger box. A third option is I tell him stuff. We are acquaintances. I can ask him for things without feeling too bad. I'm familiar with his story and even know uh, some of it and like certain parts of his story. It's not a high priority to know him, but I like it when I spend time with him. I think he's nice. (laughs) But sometimes I kind of resent having to know him better. Isn't that enough? Aren't those benefits enough? And that box feels pretty good. That's a pretty good-sized box. They're like, yeah, this is my relationship with God. See? Isn't that pretty cool? Like all the benefits of that relationship? That's good, right? And there's one last option that I want to give to you, and it, and it is described like this. And if, if you want to just count the things that I'm telling you and maybe think about how big a box this would take. I'm dependent on him. I seek shelter in his presence. I know that I can tell him anything, and I do. I know that he can do anything. There's nothing impossible for him. I spend one on t- one time with him throughout the day as often as I can. I know what he is trying to do in the world, and I try to help. Spending time with him is life-giving. His wisdom is both useful and profound. But I find myself easily understanding what I need to do and why, but suffer from a feeling that as I do it more, I'll feel that I'll understand the truth deeper. I look forward to spending eternity with him in this relationship, and I'm looking forward to seeing what else he is going to teach me, how else I'm going to be changed by this eternal lover of my soul. I'm learning to use the power he has given me to overcome the idols in my life, to find freedom, rest, and joy when before it was so elusive. I'm starting to understand what is so nauseating and short-sighted about self-love and what is so grand and proper about loving others. That's a big old box. That's a box that you want to tip over and show the contents of, right? That's a box that is enjoying a supercalifragilisticexpialidocious God. That's a box that I get excited to tell people about. Oswald Sanders says, we are at any time as close to God as we choose to be. God, what a great statement. Here's a couple things that I want you to think about as we close. That knowing God is a matter of personal dealing. It's about dealing with him as he opens up to you. It's about being dealt with as he is. The question is, do we taste the realities to which the truth of Scripture refers? Are those experiences that we want, are those experiences that we long to have? Or are we satisfied with our little mud pies that we make in the dirt? 
Knowing God is a matter of personal involvement. It's a matter of mind, will, and feelings. Commit yourself to his company, his interests, being ready to identify with his concerns. We must engage ourselves with him. It is a matter of personal involvement. It's also a matter of grace. He's the cool kid that you don't come up to him, he comes up to you. And he says, Jay. I want to be in a relationship with Jay. And lastly, it's about being known. Knowing God is about being known. God knows me and loves me. He knows the worst about me. He knows the things that I'm scared of, the things that I'm excited about. And he does not reject me. Don't you want to be known by that? Don't you want to be known like that? Don't you want to enjoy the relationship that is described in that way? He is utterly realistic in his knowledge of me and he still sent his son to die for me so that we could have a relationship again. That should make you smile, not be sad. That's good news. That is the good news. See, so yeah, are y'all enjoying how like I pull it up and then like kind of slowly just kind of works its way down? I am. All right, so... Many of us have been in relationships, be they friendships, uh, relationships with family, um, romantic relationships, we might call them, and, um, and many of us have regrets about these relationships. I call these their what if. I don't want my relationship with God to be something that could be classified as, oh, what could have been. And we usually say this when we come to a stark realization of missing the, the possible beauty of what is right in front of us. Oh, what could have been. Dallas Willard often says that helping people to, under, to know God is helping them love what is inherently lovely. I just want to end with uh, a couple quotes from a book that we have given you access to, and I strongly recommend that you read that thing from cover to cover and do some cloud circles around as much stuff as you can find. It's the pursuit of God. And I want to just read a couple quotes to you as we finish up here. He says on page four, it is not mere words that nourish the soul, but God himself. And unless and until the hearers find God in personal experience, they are not the better for having heard the truth. The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, they may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of their hearts. In short, that they may enjoy everything that he has to offer that they would love the biggest box ever made full of, full of the benefits of knowing God would pour out into their lives. When religion has said its last word, 
There's little that we need other than God himself. The evil habit of seeking God and something else effectively prevents us from finding God in full revelation. In the and lies our great woe. If we omit the and, we shall soon find God, and in him we shall find that which we have our whole lives been secretly longing for. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Many ordinary treasures may be denied him, or if he is allowed to have them, the enjoyment of them will be so tempered that they may never be necessary to his happiness. Or if he must see them go one after one, he will scarcely feel a sense of loss for having the source of all things. He is in one, has in one all satisfaction, all pleasure, all delight. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing. For now, he has all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. I want to go back to that phrase that Peter says, what I have, I give you. Do we want the God that we've been talking about this morning? That we want to be able to give him to others, to have him. It's one of the, it's one of the odd things in all of creation that we can have something that we can gladly give away and tell people about and that they can enjoy while we still enjoy it. There are so many things that we say to people, there's so many things that we try to give them, and all those things are nice. But do we have something to give them that is immortal, immutable, innumerable, eternal, that which created, sustains, provides, who is the head of the church, is the beginning and the end, the firstborn from the dead, the image of the invisible God, in whom we have forgiven some sins, through whom we have an inheritance, and by whom we are known, loved, healed, redeemed, in whose name we are saved. We give away so many things, but do we give away that? Is that what we have? Is that what we want? Guys, the, the interest here is not for you to be sad about what you don't have, but be excited about what you could have. Most of my life, I have not had this. I have it. It's awesome. I can gladly say with Paul that all other things are rubbish compared to knowing him. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what is good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil, for this mouth speaks from which fills the heart. Philip asks us in the service, the word that defines us, what someone might say defines you. What matters more than anything else is that we know God and are known by him. These two facts will affect our heart, and our heart is the thing from which we live. It says in Acts 4, 13, that the men took note that these were unlearned and ordinary men, but that they had been with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray that in our hearts that they have grown too dim and our, our object of uh, our vision of you is way too small and way too lame. Father, if your Holy Spirit has spoken to the hearts of anything through the words and the jumble that I said this morning, Father, I pray that we would not forget that word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. 
that that, God, that, that that word describes our God. That that word describes a God that I want to know and that I want to seek and that I want to find. And that's the God that there's nothing, when someone asks me for something, it's like, buddy, I got nothing else better than this. Lord, may we love you as the gigantic, huge, awesome God that you are. We pray these things in Christ's name.